Part two, chapter six of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mons, August the eighth to November the eleventh, nineteen eighteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Watkins. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesey, Part two, chapter six. Operations, September the 1st to September the 3rd, Drocourt Cayant Line. We have now come to the morning of September the 1st, the date of the great assault as originally designed. But a change had to be made in the plan. On the night of August the 31st to September the 1st, says the Corps Commander, the 4th Canadian Division came into the line on a one-brigade front between the 1st Canadian Division and the 4th British Division. The general officer commanding 4th British Division, having now reported that he considered his division unable successfully to attack the Drocourt Cayant line on the front allotted to him, in view of the losses suffered in the preliminary fighting for the jumping-off line, I decided that the 4th Canadian Division would extend their front and take over 1,000 yards additional frontage from the 4th British Division. This necessitated a change of plan on the part of the 4th Canadian Division who a few hours before zero had to place an additional brigade in the line for the initial assault. Accordingly, the 12th Brigade, Brigadier General J. H. McBrien, carried out the attack on the right, and the 10th Brigade, Brigadier General R. J. F. Hayter, on the left divisional front, having first advanced the line to conform with the 1st Canadian Division. It was necessary to postpone the attack on the Drocourt Cayant line until September the 2nd, on account of the additional wire-cutting which was still required, and the day of September the 1st was employed in minor operations to improve the jumping-off line for the major operation. The important strong point known as the Crow's Nest was captured by the 3rd Brigade. During the afternoon and evening of September the 1st, the enemy delivered violent counter-attacks, directed against the junction of the 1st and 4th Canadian Divisions. Two fresh divisions, and two divisions already in the line, were identified in the course of the heavy fighting. Our troops were forced back slightly twice, but the ground was each time regained and finally held. The hand-to-hand -hand fighting for the possession of the crest of the spur at this point really continued until zero hour the next day, the troops attacking the Drocourt-Cayant line as they moved forward, taking over the fight from the troops then holding the line. For the doings of the 1st Canadian Division on this day, there is still no better guide than the narrative already so freely quoted. Owing to the strength of the wire in front of the Drocourt-Cayant line, the date of the major attack was postponed for one day, in order to give the heavy artillery further time to carry out wire-cutting operations. In order, also, to thicken the infantry attack, the frontage of the 1st Division was reduced by some 1,500 yards on the night of August the 31st, the 2nd Brigade side-slipping south. The 1st Brigade was relieved during the night, the 3rd Brigade taking over the right sector with the 15th Battalion, 48th Highlanders of Toronto, and the 14th Battalion Royal Montreal Regiment, and the 2nd Brigade the left sector with the 5th Battalion Saskatchewan. On the same night, the 4th Canadian Division came into line between the 1st Division and the 4th British Division. Once again, at dawn the next day, the whole infantry line on the Corps front moved forward. This time, the advance of the 1st Division front was only for a distance of 1,000 yards, the new line being established within the same distance from the Drocourt-Cayant line, a suitable striking distance for the great attack set for September the 2nd. In spite of the short advance, the fighting was of the most bitter character. As soon as the protective barrage died down, the enemy commenced a series of determined counter-attacks down an old trench against the 14th Battalion. Four such attacks were beaten off by the garrison of the trench during the day, captured stick grenades and stokes mortars being used freely. 
On the left, on the front captured by the 5th Battalion, the enemy flung two battalions against the position at 11.30 a.m., a heavy machine gun and artillery barrage being used. The two companies in the forward position were slowly forced back to their original line. The battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel L. R. O. Tudor, however, at once counter-attacked with his remaining two companies. After four hours of heavy fighting, the whole position was regained, and 125 prisoners captured. The enemy was not satisfied, however, and once again, at six o'clock in the evening, he developed a strong attack. This effort was beaten off except on the extreme left, where two posts were captured by the enemy. Fighting in this area continued intermittently throughout the night, and, as a matter of fact, when the barrage opened in the morning for the major attack on the Drocourt-Cayant line, and the 7th Battalion Vancouver passed through, the 5th Battalion was even then engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fighting for the possession of these posts. During the night of September the 1st, and in the early morning hours following, while the front was in a turmoil of shell-fire and bombing, attack and counter-attack, swift rushes or stubborn resistance, the infantry, artillery, machine guns and tanks were moving forward along the whole corps front into their assembly positions for the thrust that was designed to break the Drocourt-Cayant line and secure the crossings of the Canal du Nord. Much the same situation was being combated by the 4th Canadian Division, Major General Sir David Watson, north of the Cambrai Road. Except for the tremendous finale of the barrage, the night of September the 1st and the dawn next day might be described as one continuous battle. Thus, from the time the leading brigades of the 4th Canadian Division took over the line, right up to zero hour, they were involved in almost continuous fighting. Due to enemy counter-attacks and isolated enemy posts, which were calculated to hamper our jump-off and must therefore be reduced. It was in such a situation that a valorous act was performed by Private Claude Joseph Patrick Nunny of the 38th Battalion of Ottawa. When his battalion on this day was in the vicinity of Vizanartois, preparatory to the advance of the following morning, the enemy laid down a heavy barrage and counter-attacked. Private Nunny, who was at this time at company headquarters, immediately, and of his own initiative, proceeded through the barrage to the company outpost lines, and going from post to post, encouraged the men by his own fearless example. The enemy were repulsed, and a critical situation saved. The 4th Canadian Division had in the line the 10th Brigade, Brigadier General RJF Hayter, on the right, resting on the Arras-Cambrai road, and on the left, the 12th Brigade, Brigadier General J.H. McBrien, with the 11th Brigade, Brigadier General V.W. Odium, in support, prepared to go through after the attack had well developed. The left of the division was in touch with the 4th British Division, which carried on the Canadian Corps line north to the Scarp. It is a dark and stormy night, and at times the artillery of heaven drowns out even the roar of the guns. Making our way on foot from Wancor up over that ridge towards Cherisy, we pass through seeming endless tiers of guns of all calibres, brought up in the night, and waiting now impatiently upon zero. It was to be the greatest barrage of the war, and if the artillery could not succeed in cutting lanes for the infantry, we were bound to sustain a disastrous defeat. Before every show one had to be impressed with the faith of our men in the victory of the morrow. For them it was not a thing even debatable. Certain objectives had been set the Canadian Corps, and they would be taken. It was perhaps natural enough to men who had never known failure in attack, but this was an occasion somewhat different. Exactly a week ago, the first phase of this battle had opened. For the first two days, it had gone well, a wedge 11,000 yards deep at its apex being driven into the heart of the enemy's defence. But day by day the task had hardened, until the whole line was involved in a furious battle, not so much often to win more ground as to hold what we had. 
there can be now no element of surprise, save in so far as the enemy cannot anticipate the weight and fury of our bombardment. He is thoroughly on the alert, and his trenches swarm with men, brought up day by day fresh from his reserves. He is fighting a last-ditch battle, on which must depend the trend of events many miles beyond the sound of these guns. And, moreover, admitting the unquenched spirit of the men, there remained the question of whether their reserves of physical vitality can endure this last ordeal. Such thoughts as these occur to one waiting upon the hillside a little back of the charred village of Cherisy. Below us, but indistinguishable in the night, lies the valley of the Sensei River. Beyond it, on the right, is a veritable graveyard of Canadian soldiers that await only the burial parties. We have come so far, fought so hard, paid so dear, perhaps here for the first time to meet defeat. And that in its most sanguinary form, for it is a battle that cannot be broken off at will of the attacking force. Defeat and retreat is the only alternative of victory. The night wears away. Towards morning the sky clears, but mist still hangs low in the valley. On our left a furious cannonade is in progress, but quite local in character. There is none of that tense stillness preceding a surprise attack. Heine is overhead, flying boldly, and only darkness saves the batteries massed behind the hill. The night has turned to a grey obscurity when zero hour strikes, when pandemonium is let loose. There is here again something different from that famous morning at Gentel Wood, twenty-five days ago, a shrillness of concentration, a ferocity of intense purpose in our barrage, for the front is narrow and the guns, set so close, are registered on a target even more limited. There is also the quick, the instant reply from across the valley, as it might be a rolling echo, beating back into our ears the roar of our own guns. Shells come from all directions. They plough up our hillside and search systematically every sunken road, every line of trench where our supports are congregated. The wicked crack of high explosive mingles with the soft purring explosion of gas shells, to the uninitiated hardly to be distinguished from the harmless dud. From the opposing slope reverberate the dread rattle of machine-gun volleys, and at times these minor notes are smothered by the tremendous detonation of the heavy guns. The mist lifts a little and dimly can be seen the trained elephants, the life-saving tanks, making their way on the far slope among the wire and the machine-gun posts. Two have passed up and over the enemy defence, and for a moment are silhouetted against the dawn moving heavily forward. Then their career comes to a sudden end. One, hit in the flank, swings half round. For days to come they are to lie upon the crest, smashed almost beyond recognition by a battery on the reverse slope. Daylight now picks out one familiar feature after another. The Crow's Nest, a pyramidal hill half a mile north of Hendercore, Upton Wood, and the serrated outline of the Hendercore Jury Road. Our infantry are nowhere to be seen. They have passed over the crest. Instead, dark in the valley, is a moving mass soon to be distinguished as cavalry. The Drocourt Crayant Line is won. We have won the Drocourt Crayant Line, but the battle is not over. All day long it sways to and fro, and only as dusk gathers is victory secure. Here is the story in the words of the Corps Commander. At 5am, September the 2nd, the major operation against the Drocourt Cayant Line was launched. Preceded by an intense barrage, and assisted by tanks, the infantry pushed forward rapidly, and the Drocourt Cayant Line, the first objective, and its support line, the second objective, including the village of Jury, were captured according to programme. With the capture of the second objective, the field artillery barrage was shot out, and the attack further east had to be carried forward without its assistance. The enemy's resistance, free of the demoralising effect of our barrage, stiffened considerably, the open country being swept continually by intense machine-gun fire. 
In addition, the tanks soon became casualties from enemy guns firing point-blank, and the advance on the left and centre was held up. Brutinel's brigade, reinforced by a regiment of cavalry, the 10th Royal Hussars, and armoured cars, endeavoured to pass through to capture the Marquion Bridge on the Canal du Nord. Wire, trenches and sunken roads, however, confined the movements of the force to the Arras-Cambrai Road, and this was rendered impassable by machine-gun fire and by batteries firing over open sights. On the right, however, the 1st Canadian Division pushed forward despite very heavy machine-gun and direct artillery fire, and captured the villages of Cagnicourt and Villers-le-Cagnicourt, and the Bois de Bouche and Bois de Lazon, to the east of Cagnicourt. Taking advantage of the breach thus made by the Canadian divisions, a brigade of the 63rd Naval Division, 17 Corps, which had followed the attack behind the right brigade of our right division, now turned south and advanced in the direction of Crayon. Further progress made by the 1st Canadian Division in the afternoon resulted in the capture of the heavily wired Boissy Switch line as far south as the outskirts of Boissy. This largely outflanked the enemy still holding out in front of the Canadian 4th Division, and compelled their retirement during the night behind the Canal du Nord. Although the crossings of the Canal du Nord had not been captured, the result of the day's fighting was most gratifying. The Canadian Corps had pierced the Drocourt-Hayant line on the whole front of attack, and the extension of our attack by the 17 Corps on the right had further widened the breach, and made possible the capture of a large stretch of territory to the south. To stem our advance and hold the Drocourt-Crayant line, the enemy had concentrated eight fresh divisions directly opposite the Canadian Corps. But the unparalleled striking power of our battalions and the individual bravery of our men had smashed all resistance. The number of unwounded prisoners captured exceeded 5,000, and we had identified every unit of the seven infantry divisions and the one cavalry division engaged. Our infantry had penetrated the enemy's defences to a depth exceeding 6,000 yards. In provision of the attack on the Cal du Nord, taking place the same day, the engineers had rapidly prepared the bridges and roads, advanced the light railways, and pushed forward the personnel and all material necessary for future construction. End of part two, chapter six.